Standing up. Standing up. Standing up. Standing up for the world. Standing up for the world. Standing up. Standing up for the world. But we're sitting down for these interviews, right? These are stories about life, about Oxford, about the Rhodes Scholarship. Prologue. In this podcast series, I'm talking to women from the Rhodes Scholar community about their careers, their experiences in Oxford and beyond, and the 40 years of Rhodes Women anniversary, which just took place in September 2017. I'm Kira Allman, Virginia and Maudlin 2010, and in the first episode of this series, I gave an overview of the 40 years of Rhodes Women anniversary. We talked about a lot of different themes, shared some wisdom across the generations, and reflected on our insecurities, fears, achievements, and dreams. In the second episode, I spoke with Jen Robinson, Australia at Large in Balliol 2006, and Joy Bulamwini, Tennessee and Jesus 2013, about how to fight injustice in our real and virtual worlds. And now, in this episode, I'm talking with women scholars about diversity and inclusion. We're going to hear from a couple scholars who have unique insights about getting a seat at the table and what you can do with it once you're there. In chapter one, we'll hear from Michelle Johnson, Iowa and Brazen Nose 1981, a recently retired Lieutenant General in the U.S. Air Force who served as the superintendent of the U.S. Air Force Academy. She'll talk about being a woman in the military at a time when military academies had only just begun accepting women. And she'll talk about organizational culture and what it takes to change it, from her vantage point within one of the world's most gargantuan organizations, the United States military. In Chapter 2, we'll hear from Anne Croutier-Labadie, Quebec and Wadham 2008, who runs her own consulting firm, specializing in diversity training for companies. Diversity has to be part of an organization's DNA, she says, not just a superficial quota that you meet. We'll hear how she approaches diversity in the private sector and what she's learned, not just from getting a seat at the table, but from working to pull up a whole lot more chairs for others to sit down with her. Chapter one, an airplane doesn't care what you look like. Okay, so uh, Michelle, would you just introduce yourself and your background, please? So this is Michelle Johnson from Iowa and Brazenose 81 with a secret handshake. And I'm a lieutenant general in the United States Air Force, about two weeks out from retiring after 36 years of being an officer in the, in the Air Force. Is that a big transition, leaving the military as a career? Well, it's a lifestyle, really. And I think like a lot of professions, uh, maybe uniquely among professions, but I think some where it's not, it's not just a job, it's a, it's a calling and it's a lifestyle. So yes, it's a bit jarring. I, I have had a foot in you know, different networks for a long time, so uh, we'll work through it. But no, it's a, it's a different rhythm, mm-hmm. different expectation, and, uh, and I miss it. I miss the camaraderie and the sense of purpose, since that's what I'd like to pursue next is to have that a sense of purpose and uh, to make a difference and add some value. So you've served as the superintendent of the U.S. Air Force Academy for the last several years. So you've served as the superintendent of the U.S. Air Force Academy for the last several years. What does the superintendent do? So uh, the superintendent of the United States Air Force Academy 
is essentially the president of a of a college as well as the commander of the military installation. So uh, the service academies, like armies at West Point, navies at Annapolis, Maryland, and then uh, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So for the last four years, I've been the superintendent, and the name was chosen in 1802, so there you have it. But So basically, graduating 900 to 1,000 uh, graduates each year. In order to be an officer in the United States uh, military service, you need a bachelor of, bachelor's degree. So it's a bachelor of science uh, degree uh, with 27 different majors. Um, so it doesn't matter what your major is, you still get a bachelor of science degree. The core is about two-thirds of the total requirement, and it's half STEM and half liberal education because you need the technical cognizance to to serve in a technical profession. But if you're gonna lead humans, you need to understand the human condition. And some of the greatest leaders we've had have been poets and historians and philosophers. So that's the liberal education is tremendously important. And our Dean of Students was called the Commandant, is called the Commandant, <laughs> and uh, in fact is the commander of the cadets, and yes, they march to lunch. And uh, so it's a service academy, and you're yeah. trying to imbue and educate um, people in uh, professional culture mm-hmm. and customs and courtesies and with the educational and military training part and exposure to the Air Force mission in airspace and cyberspace, um, and to be modern in the way you deliver this traditional mission. And that was the charter I had when I came in to try to deliver the traditional mission in a way that's relevant for this generation. And the modern profession of arms, which is very networked and uh, involved in other services um, and global, you know, through cyber and space and allied nations and interagency, so not just the Department of Defense. National security is really a team sport. It really crosses a lot of disciplines. So uh, to try to expose these young people to that so that they're ready to go uh, when they step out the door and then they receive a diploma and a commission in the Air Force. That's an interesting point you've made about how when the world changes, our militaries have to change too to respond to a different security landscape. I think that makes a lot of sense. But what other cultural shifts have you seen within the academy since you've been there? You made a comment in your remarks that stood out to me, actually. You said, you can have an honor code that you say, but words aren't sufficient to live honorably. Can you talk a little about that? So we realized, you know, you can um, adhere verbatim to the honor code, not lie, steal, cheat, nor tolerate among you anyone who does. and not, not necessarily be a person of character that um, one can trust and that uh, can respect the dignity of others at a, at a deeper level. So that's where the character and leadership development direction has gone. And it's been a very appealing um, notion. And people have actually you know, come to our academy and the other academies as well. We share best practices with the others um, to talk about what that means and what that means in terms of, of inclusiveness and what's happening. And I'll be honest, when I showed up, um, the institution wasn't really owning some dynamics that had happened. And it, it was it's a very different place than when I started out in 1977. I was in the second co-ed class. And uh, people overtly, their men, um, didn't want us there and would just say, you know, daily, uh, you know, you don't belong here, you're lowering standards, why are you here, you're ruining our place, and just really wow. strange... Um, uh, reactions to change, you know, and I, as I get older and reflect back, you know, I can see that people react to change in ways where they just, if to give the benefit of the doubt, um, at the very least, just cannot imagine 
someone doing something that they'd never seen before. And so they can't imagine it. And so they say, well, women can't, or what cl- name the class of people. They didn't do a class others. You know, women can't. Therefore, if you can, and I could do push-ups and run and do all the whatever they needed and the knowledge and all those things, then there's something wrong with you. And I've watched it play out like over, you know, 40 years of just people reacting to change. And maybe they move through. And, and some people really don't. But um, it really shows a lack of sort of creativity. The other idea about a diversity inclusion is diversity of thought, right? So how can you solve these complex modern problems if you can't let someone else who has, uh, in who does, has a different background? Why did you decide to join the Air Force when you did? Not many women were doing that. Well, I think, and one of the things that came from the weekend, and I hope people picked up on it, it's maybe a generational thing, is life doesn't go in a straight line, right? No. So my, my father had been a farmer in Iowa, the state of Iowa, the agricultural state in the middle of the, of the United States. And we, our family did not have experience with college months. They'd mortgaged everything for my brother to go to, to medical school, and, and that was about it. Um, so not a lot of resources, not a lot of experience with college. And it was the 70s, right? There's no internet. My, the local library was my window to the world back then. Um, and I was a good athlete. I was a good basketball player and track runner. Um, but I wasn't really recruited. I was a National Merit Scholar, but I still di- didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know what it would mean to go to the uh, these schools that were sending me brochures. So I uh, went to a career day at our high school where they bring in different professions to talk about things. And there was a liaison officer for the United States Air Force Academy, which is in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And so I'm a person of more the West and the Midwest. Um, Annapolis and West Point are on the East Coast. I'd seen Annapolis uh, one time as a tourist. But I just thought, frankly, pragmatically, I could I get, get, get a great education. In fact, the service academies are all, and I grudgingly say West Point and Annapolis too, but top public schools, top in liberal arts and in engineering, the Air Force Academy, especially in engineering. But uh, so a great education, could play sports, and serve my country for a while. But I, I didn't have that in my head. That wasn't part of our, our family experience. And so it was more a matter of why I stayed with it. I mean, initially, I thought it was be like outward bound, right? It'd be yeah. some challenge, and it would be give me confidence and strength. And if I can do that, I can do anything. Yeah. But what started to grow, and at great institutions of higher education, people mentor you out of your comfort zone to have you take chances you might not have taken. So my um, officer in charge of the group that I, in the dorm group that we lived in, we lived in groups of 100, uh, had been a prisoner of war in Vietnam, frankly. He was an Army helicopter pilot. But he said, why aren't you flying? And uh, I, I know it says Air Force Academy on there, but I didn't hadn't thought about it, right? That wasn't my family experience. And yeah. so... Um, I went and I flew in the in the glider program and then in powered flight, and I realized I can do this. And honestly, in the Air Force, the tradition in the Air Force is the, the, the leaders are pilots. So that was sort of a part of a leadership piece, an operational piece. And uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty cool thing to do. It's a pretty rewarding thing to do. And, the, and then I was also mentored to compete for a Rhodes Scholarship, which I I couldn't believe. I said, you know, I'm just, you know, a kid from Iowa, and that's the point. And so I was able to compete, and, and was fortunate enough to, to win that, which then was opening my my world up even more. We talked a lot this weekend about being on the inside versus being on the outside. And this is one of those things that I love about the Rhodes community. You have people on the inside of certain institutions, and the military is kind of 
the institution to end all institutions. And those people on the inside are trying to change things from within. And then you have people on the outside pushing on those institutions, demanding that they do better. And, you know, true confessions, I've personally always been usually been on the outside pushing, especially on the military. I mean, I grew up with the Iraq war. So to sit here with you and to have this conversation is something I think that we should probably really value as being unique, just a really great experience. How do you think about that dynamic, um, the inside-outside dynamic as a high-ranking officer in the military? Well, it, it's, it's a balance and there are just some practical realities about political structures and countries. And there are, are going to be people who enforce the laws of the land or follow the policy of the elected official. And I will tell you, after this last election in the in, uh, United States in last November, uh, I had a staff meeting the next day, and uh, it was very quiet. Nobody said anything about it. And I said, and I, really, I was a senior person at the table. And I said, well, it's come to my attention that we've had an election. And uh, so regardless of who people voted for, and I think this is something else to this, there's no one political party represented in the, in the armed forces of the United States. It's like other Americans, believe it or not, right? So how, wherever people were, they were worried. And so I found myself giving a pep talk for the Constitution um, because if all the branches of government do their work, um, the inefficiency will serve its purpose, which was to keep there from being sweeping changes that they're too emotionally grounded and try to do the right thing. And... Um, and you just need to have some confidence in that and, uh, and the faith in the system to work out. So from the sublime to the ridiculous, I guess. I'll do sublime first. So <laughs> Ramona Doyle mentioned earlier, you know, Greenham Common and protesting right. the, the, the ground launch uh, cruise missiles. Absolutely the right to do that. Um, uh, people trying to fulfill the, the directions of their political leaders is absolutely needs to be done as well. But we defend a constitution that guarantees people the right to protest. And it's the right Absolutely. thing. So then to the ridiculous, if you will. So for sporting events, so there's a, uh, there is a movement in, in the U.S. for some professional athletes to publicly uh, display, you know, take a knee or not respect the flag during the national anthem. And so we talked about this at, at our school, which is on, you know, government installation. And, uh, and we talked to our sports conference, which is the Mountain West Conference. And they were worried about you know, the safety aspect of what happens in the stands. And so we did too, but here's the nature of the discussion, right? Um, and it, and this it's an easy sell because of the purpose of what we're doing. We said, look, I cannot, and I will never, you know, disrespect the flag, especially in uniform and even as a retired person, and nor can the cadets. That's one of the responsibilities you take. However, our visiting teams and coaches and fans have every right to do that. And so we defend their right to protest. Uh, that's the thinking. And I think that's the inside out thinking. I think that's what you'd want of us. If, if we became the stereotypical sort of automatons, unthinking, following orders, this wouldn't be the American uh, way. I'm, I'm very humble knowing I have dear friends who, you know, who've been are theologians and say they cannot convince their friends that anybody in military service is a public servant because of the nature of what it is. And I, 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 I hear them, but I, I just think there's value in having people of character, uh, and and if our if the protests sway the elected officials to change the policy, all the better. Good, good, do that, because not all of the policies have been that great, 
and it gives you pause. And I, and I was uh, talking to some colleagues on our selection committee. Iraq gave me pause as well, and many of my colleagues. And uh, it wasn't in our purview to be the ones changing the policy. And we, but we really thought about about this. But we, you don't vote on military operations. It's got to go from the civilian leadership and the civilian control of the military. And that's why the civilian leaders I, I hold responsible too. They need to think this through and actually give you a strategy that you can try to go execute as effectively and humanely as you possibly can. But if you abdicate that and say, oh, those military guys will do it, I think that's a danger in a, dem in a democracy. But that's, yeah. so anyway, just th there's a lot of thoughtfulness on the inside that I don't know that people are aware of and I would want them, it would completely can differ in our opinions, which is fine, but I just don't, know that everybody has the confidence that people go through that kind of thoughtful approach about the morality uh, or the, uh, the legality and the and the ethics of of what you're trying to do in this very serious business when people are people's lives are at stake you mentioned what it was like to be one of the first women in the air force academy and how people were surprised and skeptical about your being there but what does the landscape look like to you now you know, over 40 years later with a much higher rank and years of life experience? Well, one of the advantages of, of uh, a multivaried profession that sort of starts at the tactical level doing a particular skill and grows into a sort of executive level is that you, you can get a running start in performance. An airplane does not care what you look like, right? Whatever, if you can <laughs> yeah. fly, if you can be competent, and hold your own and earn the respect of your peers, that's great. Now, there are distractions. If, if people are making it harder and you have to use a little more energy to know when to keep your sense of humor because you've heard that joke 500 times, or is that something I can laugh off, or is that I gotta stop it and say, no, we're not gonna do that, you know? And that just takes extra energy. But to be able to keep your focus and to be really good at what you do, just be competent, which road scholars are really good at what they do. Um, but then you realize, I mean, this, there's more two things. There's timing, there's dynamics, and personalities matter, and those kinds of things. Um, I've just seen patterns, again, the patterns of people's behaviors and organization. And if you understand the task at hand and really done your, and do your homework and know, you know your business and hold your ground, it's hard for people to throw you out of the room. When you look around you now in your current rank and position, do you see more diversity? Are there more women than there were? Is there more work that needs to be done? There, there are some like tens of women. So it's not it's, that many. It, it's not that many. There's more than than when I started out. Um, there aren't that many, and and it's for all the same, you know, timing challenges. When when there's a black box, if you will, and you change the inputs you're not necessarily gonna get different outputs, right? So if you bring new, more diverse people into a big hierarchy, big hierarchy, you may not get more diversity in the senior ranks. And that's what we found, that you know, 35, 40 years later, why aren't there more people of color? Why aren't there more Hispanic uh, generals and admirals? Why aren't there more Asian generals and ad admirals uh, and people of color? Uh, because, and this is the thing we've, there's been a lot of discussion about you know, what's happening in the big machine there to, to make it go through. Um, in some ways, once you get to more senior position, um, having a different outlook gives you actually more credibility because the very senior four-star generals or even Secretary Mattis, who was a Marine general, they've been around a while and they know 
that they need that diversity of thought and that if you know your stuff, whatever it is, they'll hear you. Now, you have to also step up. And, and there have been some, you know, a few real pointed uh, discussions over this weekend. Sometimes you do just have to be heard and just stand up and say it and, and maybe challenge somebody. And, and it may put you at risk. But if you do it um, in, in a thoughtful way, in a firm way and something that can be substantiated with that, you know, you're talking about and, uh, they'll say, well, you're right. Ah, you know, how are we going to make this work? So the example I used a lot that helped me with the cadets was I'd say, look, I, I don't necessarily know your journey for LGBT cadets. And obviously the, the T is not acknowledged. There's not a policy yet and everything, or the, or the cadets from different, um, racial or, or religious backgrounds or, what have you, um, I go, look, I don't know your journey specifically, but I know what it feels like to be made to feel other. And I don't want you to ever feel other. And, uh, the only other I would want is your cool creative idea that you would bring to solve it. And they seem that seemed to help bridge, help people understand more. Chapter two, sometimes it's just the right thing to do. Before we get to the actual interview, I should just warn you that Annick and I got to chat a little at the 40 years anniversary, but I followed up with her a bit later over the phone. So Annick definitely sounds like she's on the phone here, but you'll still be able to understand her and it's worth it because she has some really interesting things to say. So, uh, okay, I'll let Annick introduce herself and what she does. Great. Um, yeah, so my name is Annick Routier-Labadie. I'm a Rhodes from Quebec in Wadham in 2008. Um, and what I do for a living, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I work independently with clients on issues that have to do with diversity and inclusion uh, and with leadership. So the idea is to try and bring a little bit more humanity into sometimes slightly inhumane workplaces, if I can put it that way. Okay, so what does your job entail? You've carved out this entrepreneurial space. How do you tackle diversity and inclusion in your day job? Yeah, well, um, there, I mean, this idea of diversity and inclusion has been around for a really long time. Um, there's every couple of years, I think, a renewed energy, um, you know, a new study comes out or a new imperative or, or something it reinvigorates the the commitment uh, and typically the people who contact me are um, often HR departments um, and sometimes CEOs, but mainly HR departments who've received a mandate from the CEO, from the board to say, hey, like we're in 2017. Um, it's kind of crazy that our organization still looks and feels the way it does today. What can we do to change that? Um, and, uh, people, you know, uh, organizations have tried a lot of things uh, and have failed. Uh, so, you know, when I when people reach me, it's, it's not their first rodeo. Uh, there's a little bit of fatigue in the organization. There's typically, um, you know, a lot of enthusiasm, but also uh, a lot of impatience in dealing with an issue that, um, you know, is, is complex and can't be resolved in a quarter. So, uh, yeah, like, what does it look like in the day to day? We have a bunch of conversations around um, what they're trying, what what organizations are really trying to achieve. For some people, it's it's uh, I would say a little bit more cosmetic, a little bit more in, in terms of representation. 
uh, which, which to me, you know, we could go into a whole conversation around that, but which I don't really find to be a compelling motivation. And then some organizations just really want to create an environment that's, that works better for more people. And if representation changes at the result of that, then great, but they're looking for it. You know, they have a different motivation for doing business with us. And based on that, um, we work with them, we work with their leaders through uh, workshops, through uh, coaching, and through some consulting around what are their processes that they're using, what um, uh, to, to either recruit, evaluate uh, their people. So uh, the main thing we do and the place where we start that is so important is in understanding what are people's real motivations for doing that? What's the level of enthusiasm and what's the level of support and education from leaders at the top who make this happen. Cool. So how did you personally wind up working on this, on this issue of diversity and inclusion? Yeah, um, so many different answers to that question. I can start with a super corny one, which is, um, I, I think I've been all, always interested in these issues. I was, I think I was in the fifth grade and I had to write a paper on fish and my conclusion at the end is like, you know, all fish are different, but we should love them the same. I, I don't know. There, there was always a, a bit of a, a, an attraction to um, wanting to live in a world where that works better for more people and where more people feel seen uh, fully for, the, for what they have to offer. So I'll start with that. Uh, but uh, really, my, my background has been a meandering journey. I was... I was a I was a scientist. I was a physicist, and I did biomedical engineering. And uh, I got to Oxford and started doing research on uh, decision support systems um, to support uh, doctors in making better decisions when it came to their patients for either diagnosis or medication. And um, you know the the human side of that, the human element behind the technology, was really interesting to me. And this is where I first encountered this idea that. Um, you know, doctors aren't really rational and they don't always prescribe the best stuff, uh, the best, you know, uh, treatment based on things like gender and things like race. Um, and, and so my, my, my sort of encounter with that happened there. Um, and I was building technologies that were really interested in the human beings behind them, who is it was going to serve, how, um, you know, how we can uh, basically make healthcare better. Um, beyond the technology, how, how can we really improve things behind the like fun, intellectual, geeky engineering problem? Um, so that was my research. Then I left uh, research and I went to, uh, as a lot of people in Oxford end up doing when they leave research, I went to McKinsey & Company to work as a consultant. And there the fascination with um, humans behind the organization with the humans behind the strategy uh, continued to, to percolate for me. Um, you know, I was spending my days doing PowerPoint on strategy and really asking, well, there are people that have to make this happen. How do we create an environment where those people can thrive a little bit more? You know, the, the sort of human side of things was always present, even when I was doing some scientific, highly rational work. And uh, while at McKinsey, I also got involved in... Um, in diversity and inclusion initiatives. And at the time, um, there was a real focus, first of all, it was, it was focused on women, and I would say um, probably white women, if I can be provocative here for a second, though it was never explicit, it, it can become implicit sometimes in the thinking. Um, 
And while I was there, uh, initially a lot of the conversation was around uh, maternity, around the, you know, the typical conversations we've been having for a really long time. And I said, well, and, and this goes back, this is why I was sharing the, the, about the research on decision-making. Uh, well, at McKinsey, I said, well, what if, what if there was something other than big policies and pregnancy really getting in the way of certain people feeling like they really belong in this organization? What if um, it was the it was it was biases? What if it was the culmination of small um, things that happen every day that really um, that really you know contribute to a person wanting to leave? And so while at McKinsey has started uh, a big conversation with partners and with consultants around around uh, bias and around um, the nature of our everyday interactions and how we could change that, and from there just got way more interested in having that conversation than in having the rest of the consulting uh, work. And so I left McKinsey to basically do this full time. It sounds like you took a real leap there, a bit of a risk to go off and start your own enterprise. How did you find the confidence to take that risk? Yeah, yeah so many people have said that to me. And it's true, it was, uh, it was a risk in a sense that I was leaving I mean, I was living leaving uh, an environment that um, could seem like it's not risky, uh, and it was risky for me because fundamentally I wasn't really happy. Uh, I was, I would say, I was probably impacting my health. Uh, I was sick while I was there, so there were a lot of risks. Uh, if I can flip the question around and me staying. Um, that said, uh, for sure, leaving a big company to start a business is a risk as well, um, and. Um, yeah, I, I, it was really exciting and it was terrifying. It took me, I mean, I'm still, I'm, I'm what, almost four years in and I still feel like I'm in transition. <laughs> I think there's something about entrepreneurship where it's just a series of transitions all the time. Um, but I, I mean, I did, I guess I did um, have people who really helped me along the way to, to mitigate the risks. So when I started my business, I wasn't alone. I was actually with another woman who was a bit more senior to me, who had connections, who had clients, and who made the transition a little bit easier. So it's not like I did it all on my own. And the other thing is that uh, while I was at McKinsey, I really did not live that sort of life. And so I, I allowed myself um, some flexibility, uh, you know, money-wise, to take some risks afterwards. Yeah. So at what stage do people or organizations come to you for expertise? And in your experience, what's usually standing in the way of those organizations achieving diversity on their own? Uh, I will start by saying um, the people I talk to um, have good intentions. Um, they have good intentions in the sense that they're um, seeing something that isn't working or that, you know, they feel isn't isn't the world that they want to live in. And they're like, we need, we need support and we need help. Um, with that said, they're often, I mean, <laughs> especially public companies that have increasing pressures to, uh, to show the world that they're changing. So to show the world, we have this number of women or this number of people of color in, in high, in positions of, 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 you know, senior leadership inside our companies. And I think um, that sort of public, pressure is is sometimes um, is sometimes driving some motivations to do this that don't really end up creating what they're striving for. 
So, um, you know, some, sometimes clients are like, yeah, we're all for creating a better environment for more people. We're all for disrupting bias. We're all for pushing inclusion. But at the end of the day, we need to increase our number of women by 30% in the next like six months. And this is where a lot of pushback is often required in saying, if that is your goal and your unique goal, my experience is it's probably going to backfire and you're probably going to end up worse off than what you were attempting to do. Because, um, you know, you're, first of all, you're tokenizing complex human beings and saying that because of their gender, um, there should be more of them. Um, you are creating resentment um, inside an, an organization that really doesn't necessarily understand why it is that that should be changing because the level of understanding isn't the, the same. So um, often, their, their intentions are good, their time frame is off, uh, and their, their level of patience is a little bit off, and their, their end outcome, um, for a lot of organizations, it's, it, it's more cosmetic than it is um, really in terms of their DNA. And so my work is to try and, first of all, find the clients where it's an interest in making this part of their DNA more than a cosmetic shift. Because I want to, I want to think that the work that I'm doing is going to make a real difference, uh, and and pushing those organizations that start off with the more um, visible change approach uh, and and nudging them along into finding something that 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 might you know be a little bit more meaningful. So, what alternative methods can we use to measure diversity and the impact of your work other than quantitative metrics that you mentioned? Well, and to be clear, I'm not against measuring um, at all. I do think that uh, keeping track of representation numbers um, at all levels, keeping track of how long it takes for different people to get promoted, keeping track of salary discrepancies, of, um, um, of evaluation scores, and looking at those really rigorously through the lens of identity, I think is really relevant. That said, um, I like to see those things as leading indicators rather than as the unique goal of what you want to change. Um, so what other metrics do I look at? Uh, do I like to look at? Uh, how about employee engagement? How about um, uh, measures of psychological safety, which more and more people are trying to develop to figure out how to measure inside teams within organizations? Um, how about uh, feeling of being heard, um, innovation? So there, there's a lot of other metrics that um, are, are actually really hard to measure, um, but that I think are a bit more interesting. Uh, the other thing, and I mean, I've been speaking really broadly about the work I do, but one of the things I've been doing specifically has been uh, learning uh, and, and conversations starting on unconscious bias, which is a field that is um, actually, <laughs> a lot of research says, you know, those things don't really work. And so uh, it's, a, it's an added pressure on us to think about um, how do you know when does it work? Um, and so, in rolling out workshops on unconscious bias um, with some clients in the recent years, what we've been doing is follow up learning and follow up on commitments. You know, what have you been doing? Uh, what what have you seen the impact being? So, in 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 um, more qualitative interactions with participants um, and then talking to team members of those leaders and saying, have you noticed some shifts? Is anything different? And, and going qualitatively on what are people's perceptions of their work experience and how is that changing? But to be fair, 
Um, I would say that my field has a lot of work to do in becoming more rigorous in the corporate world and, de and demonstrating what it's doing. And I'd also say that um, a lot of the, the stuff, that a lot of the changes are, are soft, they're small, but over time they can become transformational. So um, <laughs> the question of evaluation and measuring impact is a really tricky one. Okay, this is a big question, but I think that in your field, you probably are confronted with some people who have this question. Uh, why is diversity important? Why should we care about it? Why is it important? Um, well, there, there's a lot of different angles. Uh, you, could take, um, you could take the simple talent angle and say, um, if your workforce is not at all representative of the, the environment that you were placed in, there's a really good darn chance that you're not grabbing the best talent, <laughs> that you are totally inefficient in finding um, the people who will best move you forward. So, so I mean, at a basic level, um, I would, you know, I would say, <laughs> I would say, if you're interested in talent and you only have white men in your organization, nothing against them. There are plenty of talented white men, but there is no way that all of them are the most. Um, uh, talented slash capable individuals that you can find. So that's simply on the talent front. Um, you know, at a basic human level, I, I, I always struggle with this question because, uh, you know, how do I say this? So there's a lot of research, a lot of publications around how it makes your business more performing and how it leads to better business outcomes. And I really cringe at that stuff because, um, for some people, uh, namely some people who work in your organization, some people who don't, this is a matter of life and death. Um, <laughs> creating a world where, where, where more people are seen as human beings and are seen as valuable, uh, you know, is, is, is a question of life and death for some people. And so it seems like instrumentalizing diversity and inclusion only for the, for the value of better business to me is difficult. With that said, there are plenty of um, good uh, business reasons, quote unquote, uh, to, to invest in this, if only because research says um, more innovation, more uh, business performance and all of those things. Um, but I would say, you know, because how could you not care about this? Uh, probably not a good <laughs> way to sell business, but that's that's what I believe. Yeah, I mean, I can get behind that. I think sometimes probably we shouldn't be so concerned with outcomes. Sometimes you just have to say, well, it's just because this is the right thing to do. It is, it is just the right thing to do. And I would say, if I can be even more provocative, um, I think, you know, there, there's... Everybody's probably seen some of the research. McKinsey's published it. Catalyst has published it. Some academics are, are, are not necessarily in agreement with the research, but they say, and I said it even earlier, having um, a more diverse workforce, having more women in leadership leads to better financial performance. And a lot of people have been, uh, you know, grabbing onto that because it's like, yes, finally, like a different argument from doing the right thing that I can pull on and use as a justification for doing the work. Now, the thing is, there actually isn't any causal relationship. It's a correlation. And um, one question I'm asking myself these days is, is it that there are more women or that there's more diversity, quote unquote, in the organization that's leading to the different to better performance? Or is there something about the culture 
that allows for better performance and allows for more diversity. And, and you know, so and and that research is kind of limiting our interest for that other question, which I think could be really powerful. To switch gears a little bit, what was your experience at Oxford like? It was an awakening uh, for me. I was um, it was uh, a really high density of fascinating human beings with a lot to say. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I remember I remember it fondly, I, though, although my first year was pretty difficult in terms of transition and adapting to life away from from North America. So the first the first year was tough, but I would say, it was transformational for me in um, the sense that, uh, so I played basketball in college um, and I was a scholarship athlete. And so most of my days were kind of like ordered for me. My clothes was, was, was selected for me. The weights that I put on my, you know, on, on, on my, on the bar to do weightlifting at 7:30 AM was selected for me. My classes were selected for me. I didn't like, I didn't have some agency, but it was such a structured life. Uh, and it, it, you know, and, and it was very intense in terms of, it was sports and physics. And then I worked for the newspaper, but it was so structured and I arrive in Oxford and there's so much freedom. And, uh, it was a time where I just explored a bunch of things I'd never done before. I, I never wrote, I wrote, I, you know, produced a play and never done any theater. Um, I started writing for a writing collective online. I, you know, I had wished to do that, but I hadn't done that. I traveled. It was just um, so many new experimentations with the world that opened up for me uh, and new viewpoints and new like, you know, awareness of and different perspectives. So, yeah, it was really enriching. So parting words, do you have any advice for scholars and non-scholars who are listening? I think it's just useful to have people at different stages of their careers weigh in with some wisdom they've gained, you know, even if that wisdom matures or changes over time. What advice would you give to the listeners? First of all, I don't want to say give yourself a break. It's not the right language. I, uh, there's this thing around self-compassion um, I think a lot of Rhodes scholars, I don't want to overgeneralize because everybody's experience is different, but my experience of uh, the people in my community, the people I hung out with in Oxford, and my conversations with younger scholars, uh, a lot of people have been incredibly successful, um, whatever you want to define success as, or at least in the way that the Rhodes scholarships define success, have been extremely successful by being uh, discipline by being highly critical of themselves and by pushing themselves. And um, so for, you know, that, that approach to life of uh, criticism, um, of, uh, you know, self-improvement, I'm not good enough and I'm going to get better. It has, it can, it can get, like, it can have a use, but it's also limited. Um, at one point, I would hope you can pivot to, to, to seeing yourself as already good enough. And as your life being already valuable enough, and I think from that place, a lot more risks become possible, a lot more things uh, open up to you. Um, so I, I would say spending time in Oxford with a little bit of self-compassion and, and growing that muscle. I mean, the last thing to say, and it's definitely in link with the uh, the, the, the Rose Women Weekend, um, I mentioned this to you personally before, but I just really love 
the way that you run podcasts, your curiosity and your questions. And I'm just saying that to you uh, in, in a way to role model, I think that I think is really important that we can all do with each other um, as women or as people. And it's um, encourage each other, praise each other, create opportunities for one another. And so if anybody listening to this podcast is interested in the work I do, you know, write me an email that uh, that would be my parting thoughts. You know, let's raise each other up. The world needs a lot more of people doing what they love. So there you go. Epilogue. We've just heard a couple perspectives on diversity and inclusion in different kinds of organizations. Both Michelle and Anik emphasized in their interviews that it's not just about getting a seat at the table, it's about what you do with it once you're there. There's another theme that runs through their comments too. There's a role for the revolutionary in all of us, whether we're on the inside of an organization or on the outside. From the inside, we can put pressure on long-established hierarchies to reconfigure, flex, and slowly change. From the outside, we can challenge the very premise of the hierarchy, reject the paradigms that sustain it, demand something entirely novel and disruptive. The most important thing is to think critically, not just about how to get a seat at the table, but about where the table actually is. And it's worth saying, sometimes, you might just need a whole new table. The Rhodes House podcast is brought to you by The Rhodes Trust. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and original music for this series is by Connor Malloy. You can stream these podcasts on The Rhodes Trust website.